2: I am brown baby. 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 I am baby. I am, I am hey and um, welcome to episode two of the brown baby podcast my name is nick Shukla. i am your host i am the author of the memoir brown baby a memoir of race family and home which comes out in two weeks which is pretty mad pretty exciting not exciting i don't know if it is exciting actually because well no it's exciting for you it's just weird for me because i've been waiting for this book to come out for so long and it's because it's so personal it just i'm just ready for it to come out basically thank you so much for joining me this is a parenting podcast this is a podcast about uh, how to how do we raise babies how do we raise our children in a world that is so terrifying, and how do we raise them to be joyful, and all the rest of it. This is episode two, Uh thank you for coming back. Uh If this is your first episode, welcome. You've only got one episode to catch up with, it's always quite a relief when you discover a new podcast, and there's only like a couple of other episodes in the, in the feed, like I recently discovered a podcast that had like seven years worth of episodes, and they're all quite short, they're all like 25 minutes, but even then it felt really daunting. This episode is with Mira Sayal, which is... Amazing. I love Mira. I think she is one of the best actors. I mean, how how much has she led the way for British Asian talent? Um, but I'll talk, talk about her in a second. The first thing I wanted to say is, hey, look, my book's out in a couple of weeks and it is a memoir about parenting and grief and it's a book that asks big questions about the world and I would love for you to order a copy pre-order it go to your favorite uh, bookshop or go to your favorite pre-order site like there are loads in the show notes it's a book about parenting it's asking big questions about how we raise our kids and all the rest of it and pre- pre-ordering really helps what can I say you know I'm going to be doing that so before the interviews with the amazing people. This week, my kid had her first bit of grief and loss. Her friend, her best friend at the nursery that she goes to, moved away. And she luckily got to say goodbye. It wasn't one of those... They just sort of disappear into the ether and the parents chat. And then the kids don't really sort of get to say goodbye. And they don't really understand what a goodbye is. And it's out of sight, out of mind and all that. But actually she got to say goodbye and she's found that really really hard because she will every now and then just announce that she misses this friend and i don't quite know how to tell her that this is a feeling that's going to stay with her for the rest of her life like I want her to feel supported but at the same time this feeling of loss this feeling of grief this feeling of goodbye is something that she's gonna to have to get used to and I'm really struggling to kind of manage that because I just want to pick her up and hold her but also I want her to feel like this is a normal thing that happens in our lives you know it's really hard anyway uh this episode is with Mira Sayal uh Mira Sayal is an actor and a writer she wrote Anita and Me and Life Isn't All Ha, ha He He. She wrote the seminal film barge on the beach she has uh she was one of the stars and Writers of Goodness Gracious Me, The Kumars are number 42. Uh, she was in Broadchurch. She has been in so many different things. She is such a legend. There's that story that you hear loads about, you know, whenever we'd see Asian people on the TV, we'd run and call our parents to come and watch the TV. And we'd all sit and watch the Asian on the TV together. Mira Sahel was one of those Asians. Me and my mum used to stay up really late to watch The Real McCoy, which we both loved. But what we specifically loved about The Real McCoy was there was always one sketch about being Asian in it and I really remember seeing Mira Sayal and a doctor it might even have been Sanjeev Bhaskar I can't really remember she had some sort of Bollywood disease wherever anytime he asked her to open her mouth she'd go ah ha ha ha, ha and um it was hilarious I'm not describing it very well but you know the real McCoy is on the BBC iPlayer at the moment if you want to catch up it was amazing I haven't rewatched them yet because part of me holds them in such high esteem because they were a the thing that I watched with my mum that I don't, I don't kind of want to watch it now and it not be the same experience as I had watching it with my mum when I was like 12 13 years old you know anyway Mira is someone who I have met run into so many times over the years she's always been incredibly kind and patient with me she even played the mother of uh, a character who was pretty much me in a a read-through of a script that I wrote our paths across so many times over the years and I, I've just found her really generous and sensitive and also just very inviting and honest and authentic and I really love this conversation with her we talked about what it's like to raise boys we talked about role models and representation and what that means for for young kids growing up who uh, feel othered we talk about what it's like to be a parent and uh, a stage actor and we talk about what else do we talk about we talk about uh the the Couple of times that I worked with her daughter, who is an amazing uh, theatre maker, and we just had a really wonderful time. Welcome to the podcast, Mira. How are you? Thank you very much for having me, Nikesh. I'm very happy to be here. I'm really, really happy to be having this conversation with you. Um, you're, you know, obviously you've you've read the book, so you know you know how much this is a book that is very much about my mum as it is about my kids. I would say that my mum, the one of the only books that my mum and I have both read and talked about is Anita and Me by uh, a young Mira Sayal. It, it's a book that's just sort of had a real impact on on my life because it was, it was the first time, I think, that there was a generational conversation happening on those pages that could then be replicated in real life. And it actually facilitated a really beautiful conversation between me and my mother. And obviously the book has kind of gone on to be be a classic it's you know studied on the gcse list and all the rest of it and i remember reading an interview with you years ago talking about it and you were like i just had to get this out of my system this was just me putting everything about how i'd grown up onto the page did you did you think it was going to have the impact that it's had now no
3: I, i really didn't and firstly can i just say how much i loved brown baby It's such a beautiful and important book so thank you for writing it um I suspect your impulse for writing, it was quite similar to mine, which was, I feel that our histories have to be recorded because we are such a new generation and so much of our history has been unrecorded or erased. And so when I wrote Anitra Me, I honestly didn't know if anyone would read it, if it was any good. I just felt that I'd had such an extraordinary childhood, growing up the only Asian family in a very white working class mining community in the West Midlands in the 60s and 70s and I thought I'm aware that I'm a generation that is making some kind of history because we're so new but is anyone going to remember what it was like so for my own sake and for my children's sakes and for my parents sakes even if we were the only people that read it I felt I should write it.
2: I sometimes feel like our roles as creators, be it, you know, writers and, uh, you know, you, you write and, um, you act obviously. Obviously, I don't, you know, I'm you doing that sort of Radio Four thing of just telling you what you do and then expecting you to respond to it. Um, you know, I, I often feel that our roles are that of archivists. There's so much about you know, as as you described, you know, there's an entire generation that needs documenting. There, there, there are all these histories that need having pages filled with them so that they don't get forgotten. And also, there there are ways in which those those recordings facilitate those conversations. I mean, that's kind of why why I did. The good immigrant, because I wanted a generation of people to feel seen enough to have these conversations about how they felt about this country. I didn't do it so well meaning white liberals would read it and go, Oh, I really, I truly understand about racism now. And it's the same with Brown Baby. I I wrote it because I wanted I wanted the specificity of what I was going through to facilitate conversations. You know, I often feel like I often feel like the best writing feels like an act of love towards a community, and that's kind of how Anita and me felt to me. And obviously, how you know we could run through all of the the amazing things that you've done in your in your career, where you've really, really broken down doors and opened uh, opened open up things. And I, and I do really want to talk about. Um, parenting but one of the one of the things that you and I have spoken about over the years is frustration I think you feel that you know I remember I remember you saying after you'd read The Good Immigrant you said to me we we thought 20 years ago when we were doing Goodness Gracious Me we thought we'd have had these battles so you wouldn't have to have them and it's sort of depressing to me that you're still having to fight these fights we thought we'd done all this for you and and obviously like i know you're sort of saying it knowing you know that you know there have been points in your points in your career where you've still felt like you know there's there's the one asian role so they'll call Mira or they'll call sanjeev and and so on and so forth but uh it really kind of saddened me when you said that because you know what you did was so amazing and so impactful and what you continue to do as well you know like i'm not saying I'm, i'm not presenting this as someone who has like had a career that's over it's very much flourishing as, as we speak thanks
3: for the p.s i was getting worried there <laughs> 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 no i i remember having that conversation with you uh, it does remind me of one of my favorite t-shirts which i saw in a very old lady I'm uh, on one of the marches maybe the iraq war March maybe the anti-Brexit March but the t-shirt said I can't believe I'm having to protest this shit again and in a way I think it's uh it's quite a good lesson you know we, we're chipping away at a, a wall that's been there for years and of course you think at the time this is going to change everything it isn't but it's a little it's another little brick taken out and you can't be complacent whatever goodness gracious me achieved it did feel like we went backwards for a while but now i look at the whole generation of south asian comedy performers for example who are you know right up there got their own shows talking about all kinds of stuff not just about being south asian but just being funny and i think well i hope there is a direct line from goodness gracious me to that we couldn't see it at the time and it was very gradual but you don't know what little kids are watching what you do that are going oh okay if, if that woman that looks like that can do that then maybe one day I can it's like that lovely saying that you you plant acorns so your grandchildren can sit under the shade of the tree and it it is like that I think what we do
2: yeah uh- I also remember you saying that there was just a really powerful thing to kind of see, you know, kids in playgrounds at the time that those 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 seasons were on, just be the orchestrator, brown kids be the orchestrators of the joke and not be the butt of the joke, and have having to have you know, and white kids having to have the joke explained to them, which I think is is an incredibly powerful thing to kind of. What is know, Chuddy's exactly? Well, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> yeah, like I, yeah, and I, I do want to stress that obviously you you're still you know breaking down barriers and and doing incredibly amazing roles and and also still advocating for for young people to kind of come through which has always been a consistent part of your your career um and and, and you were saying that seeing that seeing the wealth of uh, brown comedy performance on on TV at the moment is is very heartening but there's obviously work that still needs to be done if if you if you could if you could change one thing if you if I kind of gave you the keys to the well I, I don't have the keys but if like if I stole the keys to the to the kingdom to the media empire kingdom what would be your first change
3: Oh my gosh, my first change. I, I would like
2: fire all the media.
3: Guys. Guys. Yes, I know you up against the wall. Apart from free childcare on every site, obviously. Well, you know, I'd like to see somebody like Ava DuVernay, I'd like to see our equivalents of powerful um, creative figures that have the budgets and the power to make the kind of work they want to make independently without having to go through seven levels of management or water their vision down so it's acceptable or explain themselves because people might not get it when actually time and time again, audiences... And readers have proved they are far more intelligent than the people in power ever give them credit for. I think if I could wave a wand and create a few of those creatives, that would make a huge amount of difference on every level of the creative industry, whether that was in publishing or or TV or film or theatre
2: yeah well, my, my big thing is um, I I sometimes wonder whether the burden of representation means that you spend so much of your job doing advocacy and mentoring and talking about racism and talking about your lived experience often as, as uh, from a position of pain and if that takes up say 30% of your role, 40, 30% of your job 45% of your job and stuff, that's time taken away from actually being a creator and I, and I often think that much as they're much as they're brilliant brilliant artists like Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Nick Hornby aren't sitting around in cafes talking about diversity and inclusion that you know they're spending 100% of their time being the best that they can be and so I do feel to an extent that people are held back because they have to you know the burden of representation that means that we have to do this extra work and actually I feel like the first thing I would do would be to you know give like a, a hundred grand grants to, to creatives to just go just go like take a year come back in the year and present exactly what you want to do but here's some time here's some money to buy time to just be the best you can be you don't have to worry about any of this other stuff
3: yeah yeah I hear you in a way though I think it's become part of our journey you know I often think if I'd been born a middle-class white guy I don't know what I'd have to say I think part of the reason I need to communicate and my whole career has been about communication is the need to be understood because I so often wasn't. I grew up misunderstood and different and alone. And when people keep asking you, why don't you go back to where you come from? You need to know why you're here. You know, it's all about that. Being an immigrant forced me to examine my journey and myself in a way that a lot of people aren't forced to do. So although it is a double-edged sword, yes, we spend a lot of time doing the explaining and fighting for the space, but actually that whole process is the thing that's made me
2: creative so moving on to talking about kids and stuff, because obviously this is a podcast about parenting and, you know, raising Brown babies and how we can raise Brown babies under systemically racist, uh, <laughs> systems and and all the rest of it. Um, you've, you've got two kids. Um, one of them is like, obviously in her twenties and doing amazing things. And, you know, we, I'll be led by you, but how much detail we want to talk about this amazing person who I've had the pleasure of working with a couple of times. Um, and you've got a much younger kid. Um, when you were when you were raising your eldest kid, like obviously this was this was a while, uh, a while back now. Um, what was like? What were some of your fears about bringing? like a a brown baby into this world because obviously I feel like things seem a lot worse now than they were before but was this all stuff that you were thinking about before?
3: Oh yeah, inevitably I think you immediately go back to how you felt as a child and think how much fighting uh, for space and, and combating prejudice will my kid have to do? Will it be the same as it was for me? And it wasn't the picnic growing up in the 70s in Britain in the West Midlands I can tell you. I mean, my, my, I have two children really far apart. They're separated by 13 years because I had two marriages. So I have the experience of being a young mother and a much older mother, which was sort of interesting. Um, and I think the first time round, because my daughter I was living in the East End, it was a fairly diverse school. I had lots of diverse neighbours. At least I felt that she was surrounded by Britain and the kind of city that I felt comfortable in and recognised. That was immediately much more than I had. So, diversity for her was quite a natural thing because she saw it all around her I then of course I'm bringing up a a South Asian woman and I think I think the reason she has emerged as you know a truly remarkable young woman who I really I look up to her I don't mind saying that it's supposed to be the other way around but honestly I do she's quite extraordinary (laughs) creatively emotionally her sense of self and I thought how did I do that because I, I that couldn't all be me she was obviously born with some kind of rebellious spirit. But I think because for a large part of her childhood, I was also a single mother. She went everywhere with me. She came to talk. She came to rehearsals. She came to readings. She was in my house where all my girlfriends, my South Asian girlfriends were around putting the world to rights. She was there. She absorbed all this through osmosis. And so I think even though I couldn't give her the kind of sense of community I had when I was growing up, which was all the uncles and aunties coming around every weekend, the whole plethora of weddings and engagements and religious festivals. My life wasn't that. But I found her a new tribe. I made a new community with mostly other South Asian, very strong women that had been through stuff. And I think that really was what got me through. And I think which shaped her. So I do believe it takes a village to raise a child. I've always thought that. And I think it's something in our DNA of South Asians, that most of us have grown up with busy houses and lived communally or in joint families. It's sort of how we do stuff. And it's, it's the hardest thing to recreate in this country. But I'm so glad that happened. Uh, not by planning, just did. Because I think that's the bit... I couldn't have done on my own that's the bit I needed my little tribe to help me bring up a strong south asian woman how
2: do you think that the the differences in how how you both grew up kind of affected your experiences because obviously when you were growing up and you know going down going down the path you were going it was sort of often seen as, as opposite to what was expected of you whereas with her it you know from from the moment she she's born almost it's like it's it's part of her dna it's you know she's immersed in this world where this sort of life is acceptable and not only acceptable it's encouraged and not only is it encouraged but it's valued as well and you know certainly for me like this sort of stuff wasn't valued when I was growing up and so try to make sure that my my kids feel value in being in creativity and being creative and understanding that the creative process involves people actually making stuff as well
3: yeah you're so right i mean i was honestly my a lot of my mom and dad's friends thought i was an absolute freak because <laughs> all of my my equivalent Indian girlfriends, it was the absolute cliché thing of you will do medicine, pharmacy, law, slash business studies if you really can't do the other three. Nobody I knew was doing an art subject. Certainly nobody would choose to do English. I remember one of my uncles actually laughed at me and said, you're doing English. What the most useless subject in the world? What person, all you can do is teach and what, what school is want to, going to want a brown woman to teach their English kids English? I remember bursting into tears and my dad kind of threw this guy out the house and he said, we're not inviting him again. Anyone that makes my daughter cry like that, we're not having in this house. And, th- and that was my superpower, that in amongst all of this real um, prejudice and fear about what i was doing i had two parents particularly my dad who said leave her alone she's going to be whatever she's going to be now that to me is extraordinary that people from that generation had that attitude but right from they i was writing stuff when i was four my my mum's got this still this book of very bad poems i have to say i was four and short stories <laughs> And i'd line up all my soft toys and i'd make them do plays i mean it was so obvious probably because i was this out of kilter kid i had this whole inner world where i felt completely misunderstood and the only way it was like free therapy the way i made sense of who i was and came to terms with the fact i wasn't going to be like any of my friends or indeed like my mom and what was going to become of me was i mad why was I born with this thing where I just didn't want to do A, B and C and I wanted to go on that path that nobody else had been on before? I had to come to terms with that.
2: Can you pinpoint the thing that kind of drew you into this this imag- imaginative space? Was, it, was there like a, a story or a book you read or just or, or like a, a significant piece of play that you might have had with cousins or siblings where suddenly you discovered the power of storytelling or was it just, did it just... You know, it was
3: all, all the musical evenings my dad used to have. My dad was a wonderful singer and poet. He loved chuzzles. He knew a lot of all the poetry. We had the harmonium. So very often, loads of, loads of his friends, his musical friends that loved music, would come round and they'd put the sheets out on the floor. And everyone would sit around singing. And then with the singing would be the, the talk. And that's when I suddenly saw that whole generation in a completely different light. You know, the, the mums and dads that I knew that were doctors or bus drivers or factory workers or teachers had this whole inner creative journey that I knew nothing about. They talk about, they tell stories from back home, big epic stories about land feuds and fallings out and did you hear about this girl run off with this boy and the pregnancy no one ever talked about and the one that went mad and did you hear what happened to my grandmother in partition? I mean, it was, do you know what I mean? The room was full of stories that weren't being told, that weren't being heard. And I saw them in a completely different light and I suddenly thought, everybody has a story. You just have to ask. And that for me was such a powerful kickoff into thinking, you know, if people know we have these inner lives and we have these experiences, they can't see us as other anymore. They can't see us as the brown people over there the ones that serve you in the shops or mend your broken knees, they'll see us as this complex, real, emotional, fully-rounded human beings that have gone through so much
2: to be in this country yeah and it's something that that is written about beautifully in anita and me those those musically storytelling evenings that you describe And, and it's funny you're saying this because sometimes i think that actually i'm not necessarily the person who needs diversity because like i've spent my entire life you know imagining myself you know seeing myself as peter parker or seeing myself in 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 other things but actually you know given that we work in the imagination business and yet large parts of our audience don't have the imagination to see brown people as main characters or even you know they're willing to suspend their disbelief enough for world, a world where ghosts need busting but in 2015 they couldn't suspend their disbelief enough for the thought that four women could bust ghosts and I just think you're the people who need diversity more than I do
3: you know. But that's the, <laughs> that's the power of art though Nikesh that is the why I, I believe it's so important what we do not in a Ponzi way but I think people are going to understand and feel and experience when you reach out to them creatively more than a load of political speeches.
2: This is Paige, the
1: co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and three hundred and sixty-five day returns.
2: Yeah, definitely. You know, my uncle, um, who was a, uh, you know, he did did a big piece of civil rights activism in the in the late sixties when the Race Relations Act came in, and um he and I were talking about it. In 2018, when we we're coming up to the 50-year anniversary of this thing, this this court case that he had brought, and he was talking about Brexit, and he was saying, "I was fighting these battles 50 years ago. 50 years, and not, what has changed?" He said, "Like people keep reminding me that the laws have they've put in laws to make us all equal, but the what what use is a law if if uh, this country has done nothing to change the hearts and minds of people." and it it really it really stayed with me this the, you know this anger that my uncle felt about the la- the hearts and minds but then i thought well actually i could you know that's what the power of art art can attack our hearts and minds you know the this f- film camera or or the pen is is described as the empathy canon then you know we can do that work and often so much of so much of what we're trying to do is give humanity to people who have never been seen as hu- fully human and that's the power of words you know like I I want to get to the point where we're not worrying so much about uh, making sure that white people see the universal experience in our stories but and we're we're actually just telling stories that will empower people from all walks of life but we just sometimes it just feels like we're so far away from that
3: And, and that's why it's so important getting your kids to read I mean for me reading was my window to the entire world stuck in a small town small village I traveled everywhere through books I lived so many other lives through reading books. I developed empathy and imagination through reading books. So, you know, if I've tried to do one thing with my kids, I've been a bit draconian about them reading. And it's much more of a struggle with my son than it ever was with my daughter, interestingly. As a 15-year-old yeah, boy I mean... now, I really have to crack the whip and sort of allot reading time. It's reading time before you get screen time, and he hates me for it. But <laughs> I just feel it gave me so much. I don't want him to... Not have
2: that. I think that lines up with statistics about girls and boys reading. Like boys, boys fall out of reading for pleasure much quicker than girls do. I think. I think I'm. I'm pretty sure I haven't made that up. I'm pretty sure that there was a study.
3: But it is. I mean, you know, talking about what you want to develop in your children, but emotional intelligence and empathy are not things that are highly prized in traditional Asian families. I have to say, (laughs) it is much more about you got a B, you come home with a B. And I've tried quite hard to fight that too. I mean, and I struggle. I have such an internal struggle because I was quite academic. You know, frankly, I had nothing else to do. You know, so I threw myself into my work. I wasn't going to discos. I didn't have boyfriends. I wasn't allowed out. So I threw myself into my studies. But because I was allowed to study the stuff I loved, languages and English, for me, it was a pleasure. And so I really have to struggle with that very deep side of me that just goes, you have to get straight A's in everything because that's what we do. I think the world has changed. I think, you know, for me, I'm trying to also value their individuality and their kindness and their awareness of the world. And that's quite hard in in the kind of school system we're in, which doesn't reward that stuff, you know.
2: Yeah, the kind of the war on arts teaching is is always quite alarming because I I remember I did a youth project about five years ago and and a bunch of kids wanted to do a documentary investigating what the point of learning algebra was. And it was a brilliant documentary. And their, their discovery at the end of it was that algebra teaches you critical thinking and complex problem solving. But, it, you know, it just made me think, well, you know, given how little, little emphasis is placed on the arts education, certainly like, you know, doing arts degrees are now much more, much more under under, under threat uh, because of the, the way this government values the arts education. You start to think, well, what can art give us? Well, art can teach us, as, as we said, it can teach us empathy, it can teach us critical thinking, it can teach us how to analyse, and it can also push us to look within which is something that the rest of the rest of our subjects don't allow us to do and actually a bit of self-reflection and self like actualization is probably what most people need what are the differences that you've noticed about raising raising a boy now do you think about you know what it is to 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 be to to be a boy and to, to to be a man in this world now and like and how how we can raise boys to kind of be thinking about the space that we take up and, and the patriarchy and how we can, you know, perpetuate it without realising that we're perpetuating it and all the rest of it. Yes,
3: yeah, I mean, all of these issues come right to the fore when you have a son, I have to say. Having, you know, been in a highly f- female-only feminist household and then getting married for a second time and then ending up with a boy, I had to do a complete turnaround and go, OK, OK, I really have slept with the enemy and now I'm... <laughs> I've got a boy, <laughs> which was a delight. And, um, you know, I don't have I don't have many worries about him growing up to re, uh, as a respecter of women because, my goodness, he's surrounded by so many strong women, not only me and my daughter, his sister, but also my mother-in-law is an extraordinary woman, my friends, all of him are around. And I have to say, the school that he's in and the girlfriends that he has... You know, they're so tuned in, they're so clued up. There's a feminist society at this school, which is 50% boys. And they don't just go just because there's lots of girls there. I mean, they're actually quite tuned in. They've just had loads of discussions on consent, for example, in their lessons. And we talk about it. So, And, you know, I get him to do chores. And I continually say, you know, this is not my job because I have a uterus. You know, we all live in this house and we all have a bit to do. Even that's just a massive change from how I grew up. You know, my worry is much more about how does he grow up as a proud brown-skinned man in this society because the role models he has are so few and far between in terms of visibility. I mean, if an alien landed and wanted to know what brown men were like and took a sort of survey of television over the last five years, he would go, oh, paedophiles and terrorists. Excellent. Because (laughs) that's... That's been the emphasis, but for a young brown man, I worry that the image that they have that is perpetuated is so negative on so many levels.
2: I, I, I wrote uh, an essay years ago about sexuality, as, not, sorry, a masculinity in South Asian men and how it's uh, depicted in popular culture. But I, I, obviously, I describe in the book this this uh, this theory, this uh, pop culture theory that my friend Yomi sent to me about um the three bears theory of how the object of affection in most western popular culture is the busty blonde and you present the the sexualized black male with a too too big a dick and the under the sexually repressed asian man bit um with a with a small dick and then you have the the, the white male who is just right uh, like the the goldilocks in the three bears <laughs> uh, theory when i think about masculinity and and brown men and how that conversation just isn't had very often and it and it is often reduced to like a form of repression that results in something very negative so like you know if they're sexually repressed that kind of makes them really really inappropriate around women or if they're like repressed because of their family they end up turning to terrorism or to IT or you know to, to functional jobs and all the rest of it and actually the the thing that's we don't talk about is how we of soft and vulnerable and can be can be quite masculine and all the rest of it. I mean there's obviously a complexity there and it you know you just don't see it I guess that's what I'm saying like part I feel like part of my job as an archivist is to kind of present these things to to people so, so they feel normal and they don't feel out of the ordinary but that's because you know when you have one thing when you have just goodness gracious me on every community will tear into it and try and see themselves into it and it can only reflect what you guys you, you know the uniqueness of what who you guys were. You know, that it wasn't an all-encompassing South Asian show. Um, And yet it was treated as such. And that must have been really hard for you. Well, I think
3: that's the problem. And there are so few things on everything becomes representative. You're given the burden of, oh, that's what Asians are like. And you go, no, this is just one show about this particular bunch of Asians and our particular opinion. But, you know, if you only get one every 10 years, of course you're going to think that. Um, So really the answer is to just have a full range of 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 representation, where the burden about what your race is and what your issues are is not the point. The point is you're just a character in a story, yeah. good, bad, but human, and and that's always what we've striven for, I think. Well, I mean, you know, of course, it's it's getting better. There are little beacons of hope. You look at Riz Ahmed's roles, Himesh Patel, um, Dev Patel, Rahul Kohli. You know, a four south asian men that spring to mind who are doing great unexpected work and redefining you know that whole image so it's not all bad and things are changing but certainly as the the mom of a, a south asian boy i want him to have really yeah. good men to look up to as he's growing up besides his dad who is a wonderful man and his uncle but yeah out there.
2: Yeah, it's, it's funny thinking about Himesh because um part you know, this this essay that I did about masculinity and, and romantic leads and stuff, that's what led me to uh write this short film Two Doses which Himesh was in and it was very much like we wanted to we wanted to do a rom com with a South Asian with a brown guy as as the romantic lead and for him to be attractive and and all the rest of it, and and I was really adamant that we get Himesh to do it with the director. I said, trust me, like he's he's wasted on EastEnders. He's so funny. And then he arrived, and he'd obviously grown out his like post EastEnders hairs, and like looked amazing, and all the rest of it. And what was great about it was that was what got Danny Boyle to cast him in yesterday, where he obviously um, played your son, because um, uh, it was shown as part of a film festival where Danny Boyle was. One of the judges of uh, it was the Shuffle Film Festival, and Danny was judging it, and he saw that, and that's how he came across himesh and ended up casting him in in yesterday, which is really nice. He's
3: such a fantastic actor, and he was so brilliant in that film. He just did us proud, didn't he? He was just effortless.
2: There's a big question that I ask everyone is, but you know, like one of the things that I really want the book to do is to start conversations about how we can raise our children to be aware of the world, uh, have realistic. Um, a realistic view of the world, but also feel a sense of joy and boundlessness and ambition, and and not feel so like not feel the cynicism that I feel about you know racism and about how racist and sexist and misogynistic and transphobic this country can be. But actually, like there is a space for for our kids to kind of go. i We're just going to run forward into this world and make it sh- shape it into our image. How how do we do that? How have you done it, Mira? Style? <laughs> Please tell Blimey, me. Well, I mean,
3: it's really hard at the moment, isn't it? I mean. Anyone from 16 to 30, I feel incredibly, I feel for. They've just had a whole year taken away from them. We've got Brexit looming, we've got economic gloom. I mean, it is, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be really hard for our young generation on, on so many levels. Um, you sort of have to take the long view, don't you? It, it seems to me that a lot of the most exciting creative work and revolutionary movements have come from periods of darkness because they have to because we have something to kick against. You know, there wouldn't have been any alternative comedy without Thatcher, I don't think. And I think in the same way, hard as it is now, what we can help our children to see is that this will forge you in some way, because it's going to be really tough, but you are going to find your resources. And in a way, you know, when the playing field is so bumpy right now, this is is the right time to sort of grab the stuff that you're passionate about because all bets are off in terms of steady careers anymore you know the whole Asian parent thinking you go to university you do this you go there you go that you buy your house you buy your forget it our whole lives have been thrown into the air I think traject the trajectory of our children's careers, they'll be doing jobs that haven't even been invented yet. That's how fast things are changing. So in a way, we could use this opportunity to say the world's had a shake up. It's made us look at ourselves really hard and what's important. What's important to you. And I don't mean in that kind of just dream big and you'll make it. Not yeah. that kind. You know, you gotta work and you gotta plan and you've got to be you know, arsey about it. It's it's not just dreaming, it's the hard work, it's creating the opportunity. We are self employed, both of us. We know what that's like. But this is quite a good time to go, you know, life life has troughs like this and it always will. What are you made of? How can you develop your emotional resources to be able to weather all of the things that life is gonna throw at you? Because that's that's the measure of how happy you'll be eventually.
2: And what and what has sort of come out for you is the most important thing over the last year
3: well i love the sense of community that's developed you know i'm on a a fairly large road but not so large but i mean i only knew probably three or four people on my road i know you know the ubiquitous (laughs) whatsapp road group but you do feel that we've started to look out for each other and we know each other much better and we talk to each other. And that chimes much more with how it felt to me growing up as part of a little village community and then the wider community of my aunties and uncles. I feel like that is how we should live in society. We should live as little communities and, and big families. I don't mean in terms of numbers of children, I mean in terms of your village that help you bring up your child. That's emerged. You know, like a lot of people, I've had real quality time With the family, which is really great if you like your family, and it's been really hard for people that don't. (laughs) (laughs) And for people stuck in abusive relationships and all of that. So it's been quite double-edged, I think. But I, what, what's interesting, is that what I've seen happen with some of my friends that it, is that it's either made them leap quickly into a relationship that was just developing, having to, are we going to actually self-isolate for months in our separate homes or are we now going to move in together? So it's precipitated such a lot in relationships, in family dynamics. People have either absolutely gone for it, mostly with great results, or it's been the final. You know, I've been thinking about leaving for years and I'm finally going to do it because I ain't looking down with you. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I've, seen, I've seen it go both ways, which is... But it's, isn't it interesting how when society shifts in such a, a huge way and when something completely out of your control changes the world... You you find out what's important, don't you? On a, on a very
2: simplistic level. It took it took a global pandemic for me to realise that it was okay to think about my own happiness. Yeah, I think so much of the early years of being a parent for me has been about ensuring that kids are okay, everyone else is okay, they're happy, that you know they're they're fed, you know they're you know emotionally balanced and all the rest of it. To the point where I just push myself to not worry about myself, but actually the pandemic has kind of helped me to kind of go go it's okay to think about yourself as well. You know, in that classic way of like, when uh, the when the cabin loses pressure, and oxygen masks fall down, secure your own mask before you secure the mask you help other people around. You. I
3: think that's a really good metaphor for parenting. I mean, it's really hard to be a good parent if you're unhappy. I mean, basically, it is. You know, I remember the frustration of my mum's always worked. She was a teacher. So I had a working mum, although with great holidays but I do remember a lot of her friends who were intelligent vibrant creative women that basically had no career had no other life in Britain for either economic reasons because they couldn't afford childcare or they had to look after the kids or whatever the frustration and the unhappiness that came off these women I'm sure was a major part of me going I am never gonna I don't ever want to wake up at 40 and go why didn't I do that gave me a right old kick up the arse I just thought the waste of potential to me in anybody is such tragedy and so you know I think that talking about you talking about the lessons of the pandemic I think that that was one of them you're absolutely right I think I have been a much better mother because I've always worked and you know it's being self-employed does mean I spend an awful lot of the year at home which is also it's like the best of both worlds Um, but it's very dramatic and it shifts I'm either completely hands-on, at home, in brackets, unemployed, mother, <laughs> at the school gates, you know, doing the bakes, ironing the uniform, all of that, or I'm just not there at all. And my kids have weathered those storms really, really well. Um, it's not been h- easy for them sometimes. Not that I've gone away that often, but I've, I've literally just come back from filming in Canada for two months, which is the longest I think I've ever been away because of the you know, two weeks' quarantine and all of that became a much longer stint. And I had quite I was quite wobbly before I went. I thought, this is the longest time I thought my son's fifteen, his dad's at home. I can I can <laughs> let <does> go.
2: Want, <laughs> as long as he's got his PlayStation four, he won't even notice that you're gone. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
3: But you know what? Yeah. I, I come back and lo and behold, my son's learnt to do loads of things he didn't do before. And I thought, Well, there's a lesson. <laughs> Just don't be running around picking up his pants. He actually can do that. He's learnt how to cook, he's doing his laundry. He's making his bed. He didn't okay. do so much it? of that when I was around, so that again was quite interesting. How
2: does it work when you're when you're doing stage stuff?
3: That was. That was much harder when, not when they were very little, but I think sort of between the ages of maybe 5 and 11, 12, when, you know, the evening is quite an important bonding time. You chat over supper and you're there for the homework and stuff. Actually, much less of an issue with a 15-year-old because, frankly, he goes to his room and I don't see him. You know, he'll come <laughs> down to, to eat, but he's, he's got a lot of homework at the moment, so he's doing his homework, at least he says he is. He'll come down to eat. Then he'll be talking to his friends. Then he'll come and say hello. I mean, they like you to be around. But they're so... I can feel he's pulled... You know, he's hes a young man. He's, you know, being a teenager.
2: And he's, he doesn't need me in the same way. He's joined the Feminist Society to, to to talk to girls, you know.
3: Do you know what? I got a lump in my throat when I just said that. He doesn't need me anymore. I might just cry now. That's <laughs> just hit me. No! <laughs> but they
2: need oh sorry about that, that, that that's, it now.
3: Oh, that's Mom, in now need, mum I need <laughs> you I know mum now um yeah I think it's um I mean it's a natural progression of things isn't it but yeah going back to a question about theatre so theatre in those years I felt was a lot more difficult it's and and when they're really little it's quite easy because you know they're going to bed quite early so I tried not to do so much in those years but now it's not so much of an issue but yeah but, I mean You know, and I'm married to an actor, so our our schedules can be baffling to both of us sometimes. But what we have always tried to do is team tag. And we've done that, I would say, throughout my sons, since my son's been around. And that has meant turning down work. Yeah, I've turned down some things
2: I would have loved to do. I would have loved to have seen your bond, I mean it's sad it had to go to Daniel Crane. <laughs> darling, because... it was
3: heartbreaking, you should have seen the bikini I wore when I came out the sea it was just I know, I'm sorry you missed that, but yeah so we team tag and so there's always been one of us at home so I think that's how we've we've weathered being two self-employed parents.
2: Mira Sayal, thank you so much. And that was Mira Sayal talking to me there um at the end of 2020 sorry for some of the background noise there were some people doing some work uh in the house opposite where i live and it kind of invaded this microphone thank you so much for listening uh it was a really great chat with mira i had a lovely time uh we spoke loads off mic and on mic uh, I, I edited out the hilarious interruptions that we constantly had i think i left one in for for, for the comedic effect um Next week, we've got an amazing guest. I'm not going to tear it up uh, now, but just come back next week. But also next week is launch week for this book. I'm really excited for this book to come out. Again, pre-order the book if you can or just buy it. If you're listening to this after 4th of February, Mira Sayal, the author of Anita and Me and Life Isn't All, ha ha he he. Buy those. Go and find Goodness Gracious Me if you've never seen it before. The sketches are on YouTube and hopefully the the actual shows are on the iPlayer. I don't know. They should be. They deserve to be. Uh, Mira is an incredible actor and an incredible writer. Thank you for joining me. Thank you to Mira for the interview. Thank you to Acast and to Bluebird, my publisher. And we will leave it there and I will see you next week. Thank you. Goodbye. Brown baby. I am brown baby. Yes, I am. I am. Silly brown baby.